0: The Bread and Better podcast acknowledges the Yugara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Min Jin, the lands on which we record today. We pay our respects to the Yugara and Turbal elders, past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by Hey Al Productions. Uh, no, no,
1: Did I say good? I could do it one more time. <laughs> Maybe just in case. Okay. Go. Up, go.
2: go
0: bread and better podcast (laughs) okay bread and better podcast I feel like I am bread and better podcast
1: Welcome back to the Bread and Better podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tegan. In my online coaching business called Fiddy Teagues, I teach women how to enjoy food freedom and movement whilst achieving their body composition goals. I am passionate about health, fitness, nutrition, and mindset, and love talking about the issues that affect women on the podcast. And I'm Alex,
0: producer and the other co-host. I own Hey Our Productions, a boutique podcast production company. I am a mum of three and a freelance feature writer with a passion for women. Health, travel, and pop culture.
1: Today, we are welcoming back Emma Slade. This is Emma's third appearance on Bread and Better as our resident psychologist. And every time we have her on, you guys love the episodes and we all learn so much. So we are very excited that she is here with us again today.
0: I am so excited for this episode. I wanted Emma to come on here today and talk to us about anxiety. Full disclosure, I had the idea for this episode over Christmas when I was having a panic attack. And I said to Tegan, how good would it be to get M on here to maybe give us some ideas about how to stop a panic attack and also talk about the difference between, you know, uh, anxiety and normal anxiety and just like break that down a little bit as well. So welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me back. Before we get into the episode, let's start the way we always do by discussing
3: the best thing we ate last week. Do you want to go first? For sure. So on the public holiday recently, my partner and I went to the Rabbit Hole in Seven Hills uh, and the Brekkie Bow Buns. I get that every time. Every time I walk in, I say I'm going to get something different.
0: (laughs) I've done that only ever once. So, yeah. I love Rabbit Hole because they have a little play area and it's like one of the only cafes that do. So they do good hot chips too.
1: (laughs) I love bao buns. What's yours? So on Sunday, I went to the Kira Hotel, which is like a new sort of renovated place. I don't know if it's new or if it's just been renovated, but I was actually there for lunch and for dinner because we were there for so long. Mm. And I did have some bao buns in that period because we tried most of the menu. But we had these chicken tacos for Mm. dinner as part of the dinner and they were really, really good. Also had the fish tacos. They weren't as good. Chicken tacos were top notch. So
0: the best thing I
1: ate was...
0: I am trusting I'm, tossing, I'm tossing my breakfast and my dinner that I had. Tell us about both. Okay. So the best breakfast that I had was I've been making this like quinoa porridge, which is really yummy, but I've been, now that I'm working out, I've been like mashing banana into it. And I cook that in the, like on the stove with blueberries and a bit of brown sugar and it's delicious with soy milk and stuff too. Okay, it's a bit custardy. So I've been enjoying that. And the other night we got chicken wings from the butcher in Camp Hill. They're the best. And we had that with like a really big salad with like mango and avocado and pine nuts. And it was delicious.
2: Yum. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of chicken wings. Were they marinated? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They're like honey soy, but they don't taste like too sweet or anything. They're really good. And of course, gluten-free. It's one of the only places you can get gluten-free ones around
1: here. So... Okay. So let's get into the episode. So firstly, Em, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done in regards to helping people with anxiety?
3: Yeah, for sure. So I did my master's in psychology in 2016 and 2017. And in that process, your class as a provisional psychologist. So you do a thousand placement hours working with clients. So across that time, I worked in this psychology clinic at the university and then also in drug and rehabilitation and then also in sporting teams. So across those experiences, anxiety is always present, uh, as we'll come to to learn it's one of the biggest mental health uh, and illness spaces. And then since 2018, more so working in general practice and then also with athletes in regards to performance anxiety. Yeah, so that's sort of the the breadth of, again, anxiety crops up across psychology in all facets. Yeah. I actually was watching the Naomi Osaka documentary
0: last night mm-hmm. and she talks about, like, anxiety and you can see when it affects her game, mm-hmm. it's insane. And same with, like, um, on the Breakpoint documentary, Sabalenka was getting anxiety and it's just, like, such a mental... You can see them struggle with it like on the court as soon as something goes wrong, then. Mm-hmm. They're so in
3: their head. It's so yeah. interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably where we see athletes who, when we talk about, you know, they could go through exact same physical training and physically be on par, yes. but it's the one who's perhaps done the the mental skills training and that ability to deal and cope with anxiety as it's occurring that will potentially have the upper hand yeah. in a competition.
0: I feel like tennis is probably one of the things where you see that the most, hey, because mm-hmm. like you can see two very equal people go out on the court and it's whoever has like Rune really struggled with his like mm-hmm. mental state and it's just so obvious.
1: Yep. Not to get ahead of what we're going to talk about in the episode, but mm-hmm. are these people anxious or are they nervous?
3: That's what we'll come to unpack. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. definitely as we'll start to learn it and, and look at anxiety, you know, commonly you'll hear people say, I just want to get rid of this anxiety. Yeah. And as we'll come to hear, we actually probably don't because there's also this spectrum. You know, I think it was probably in one of your previous episodes, you spoke about that difference between um being nervous or anxious or being excited yeah and they've all got these very similar similar facets and that's something that we can definitely explore
1: i'm excited to get into i thought i was getting a bit ahead of myself (laughs) (laughs) as always
3: we want
0: to appreciate listeners lived experience with mental health and illness what should people keep in mind while listening today
3: yeah. So again, we're going to explore anxiety and we can really think about being on on a bit of a spectrum. So on one end, we've got quote unquote, what we would class as normal anxiety and those experiences all the way then through to perhaps more of a formal anxiety uh, diagnosis. So while we're going to talk about anxiety today, and we're going to talk about things to perhaps consider and keep an eye out for, it's really important that listeners don't diagnose themselves. Yeah. Can you recall that when I started my master's degree, we had a whole unit on the different mental health and illness, you know, diagnoses. And it's a thick book. And they said, guaranteed, you're going to read through these and the diagnostic criteria, and you're going to think that you have something by the end of this unit. (laughs) But it's really important to understand that when we're making a diagnosis, there's a lot of different things that we need to consider. Um, When it's just coming from us, we see it through our lens, through our perspective, through our, our bias, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in this space, as you're listening today, I would say if something resonates with you, then that could be an indicator that, yeah, maybe you want to explore a little bit further, yeah. but leave the diagnosis perhaps to your GP or to your psychologist. And your GP is a really great starting point if anything resonates with you today and, and being that gateway to further support. I would also say too that, again, in any of our psychology topics, and I say this to my students uh, at uni as well, if there's something that pops up for you as you're listening or as you're you know in class and you're sitting there listening, please feel free to disengage so yeah. you don't need to continue to listen to the episode. You can come back at any time point and you've got that autonomy and that choice. Yeah. So to get us started, what actually is anxiety? Great question because it's going to be the foundation of everything that we explore today. So I've got a bit of a definition here, which I'll read out. So anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness or an ease about something with an uncertain outcome. So anxiety tends to be very future focused uh, and this is, and it tends to be very concerned with like a future threat, whether that threat is real or whether we're perceiving it or whether we're kind of just thinking that it might be there. Something similar is what we know as fear, but that's an actual response to a real or perceived imminent threat. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about how those two, two relate. So fear is kind of very similar, but fear is in the here and now. Yes. Anxiety is sort of future focused. Ultimately, though, the role of anxiety is to, to keep us alive, to keep us safe and to get us going. Yeah. Okay. So a nice example that I like to use is we, if we pretend that we're a cave woman or a caveman or a cave person, okay, and you wake up one day and you walk outside your cave and there's a pack of saber tooth tigers. Yes. And this is where we'll commonly hear this experience of going into fight or flight response. Okay. So there'll be a fear response because there is a threat right there. Yeah. Okay. And we go into this fight or flight response. I think Michelle and her episode spoke a little bit about the nervous system. Yeah. So what happens when we go into fight or flight response is our sympathetic nervous system uh, triggers the body into this state to be mobilized. It's ready to either fight or it's re- ready to flight, So flee or run away. Yeah. We don't have much time to think. Okay, so again in previous episodes I've spoken about how logical, rational brain kinda likes to think things through. This is more just dipping into like a state where I have to make a choice yeah. and I don't need I don't have much time to think it through. And the body kind of takes over. What we also see is adrenaline and cortisol will start to fire. Okay. So those physiological reactions again, because we're about to do something, we need to respond. So when we look at fear, and then this also taps into the anxiety as well, we have a range of physiological responses. So we can often, again, if we experience fear or we're experiencing anxiety, we'll often feel that our heart is pounding out of our chest mm-hmm. to the point that some people go, I can hear my heart beating in out of my ears. Yeah, in your ears. It's almost ringing in your ears. Yeah. yeah. So what we've got there is an increase in heart rate. You might start to feel really sweaty or like clemmy. Um, you might find that you have an upset stomach, you might start to shake. Um, Again, going back to the increase in heart rate, we'll find that the breathing is really shallow. So breathing at like sort of like a chest level, almost like hyperventilating or feeling breathless, and we might also feel really dizzy. Yeah. So what's happening here is we've perceived this threat. So again, the pack of saber-toothed tigers, we have to either be mobilised because we're going to run back into the cave or we're going to run away or we're energised and we're mobilised. To to fight to kind yeah. of fight these saber tooth tigers off. So what happens and is that will then pass? So say you've probably ran back inside into the cave, okay, and then maybe the next morning you're like, oh, I just stick my head out and you're like, okay, there's no saber tooth tigers, we're good, we're safe. But maybe in a couple more days, saber tooth tiger appears again, right? So this whole process starts again. So your body is alerting you that something's going on, yeah. What we can then see with anxiety is is then whether the saber-toothed tigers are there or not, our brain has associated that stepping outside the cave, there will be saber-toothed tigers, yeah. even if there's not any there. Yeah. And that's kind of how anxiety starts to build and starts to work. It's this future, it's this unease with an uncertain outcome. Yeah. yeah. And then you start getting anxious about being anxious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I
0: just want to say the whole time you're talking then I'm like trying to like write all these notes in my brain. So I was going to ask you what the symptoms of the um, sympathetic nervous system reaction were, but then you explained it. So mm-hmm. I get all the things that you said and I can hear it, like my heart beating in my ears. It sounds like if you've ever had an ultrasound, like a, a, mm-hmm. if you've had a like, and you can hear like, that's what it sounds like in my ears. Mm-hmm. And then I get all those things.
3: Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. awful.
0: And then I get anxiety about having a panic attack. Yeah.
3: Yeah so okay. in a little bit we'll go through what panic attacks are yeah um because it, that definitely sort of clicks for me those experiences that you're having yeah um but then there is and this is the thing where people can feel really silly in regards to their anxiety and often it prevents them from seeking help or telling people yeah because it's something for example you know i had a panic attack or i was experiencing anxiety before i went to Coles yeah And it's like I don't want to tell someone that because they're going to think I'm like what, you know, you can just go to college, just go to the supermarket. Like it's easy, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But this is what then starts to happen is we have this anxiety about being anxious and as we'll come probably talk a little bit about it, it can lead us then to stop doing the thing. Yeah. So we'll stop going to the supermarket or at a certain time or whatnot. Yeah. Which then loops back into our thoughts and our behaviours that, well, if I'm not going – yeah, I must be anxious about it. Yeah, and then the more that you don't do the thing,
0: the more yes. you build it up in your head. I'm one of the people I get anxious about going to the supermarket. But then once I'm there, I'm fine. Yeah. But And about like school drop-off, like literally everything. I get mm-hmm. anxious about checking my phone. Like if I get messages from certain people, like won't even look at my phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> little things that seem really silly to people. If you've got that anxiety, anything can – Trigger, like obviously, I've had some awful text
1: messages. So then, you know, when yeah. you get those, you're like, oh. yeah. Can I ask a question on the back of that from someone that doesn't experience anxiety to that extent? Mm. When you were talking about the saber tooth tiger, mm. the, the anxiety, does it? happened because there was a saber-toothed tiger at some point mm. or for some people is it just the perceived thought that there could be like yeah. is there usually a trauma that leads to anxiety or is it just one of those things
3: yeah so when we're talking about anxiety it's really hard because sometimes there is no reason yeah and it's and again people will rack their brains We we tend to be very reasoning like humans reason and they rationalise, they often look for what it may be. Yeah, But sometimes there's no reason no, or no direct reason. But certainly anxiety has that purpose that if you've experienced something before, it can then lead to experience anxiety now because that's what anxiety is trying to do, It's trying to protect you. Yeah, trying to keep so, you safe. Yeah, it's trying to keep you safe. And that could be from a physical threat, so it's to keep you safe from dying. Like, again, if you walk outside your house and there's a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. But it's also things regarding your safety in regards to your emotional state. Yeah. I've got a couple of examples. So one is perhaps you were forced into public speaking at school because you have to present. We all had to go through that. Yes. Yep. So we're already a little bit like, oh, you know. Perhaps just someone who doesn't like to be front and centre of a stage and have everyone listen to you talk about the history of whatever you're learning about in history. So you have that sort of base, like nervousness, right, as we've spoken about before. And nervousness has a purpose. Again, we'll we'll go into that. We've got this base level of of nerves. Perhaps then someone laughs at you in the class because you stutter a couple of times. Mm. Now, I've presented before, no one cares if you stutter. I just make a joke of it. I'm like, oh, ha, 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 roll on. Yeah. Okay, but when you're perhaps 15, that seems like the world is just caving in on you. Okay? Then you'll quite unquote get over that experience. Might take you a couple of weeks. But then what can start to happen is, is that next time that you go to public speak, the anxiety, and I call it the anxiety as its own sort of beast and its own creature will, could start to tell you things. Remember that last time when you presented and Jack up the back of the room laughed at you? Mm-hmm. Don't stutter this time because this could happen again. Yeah. Okay. And again, stuttering is a normal thing when you're presenting. And then so we become, again, a little bit of fixation on that, yeah, which then can lead you. And we'll talk about performance. When we talk about performance, we're talking about not just athletes, but our ability to execute tasks is then not as good because you're hyper-focused on the very thing that you don't want to do. So this is how anxiety can then start to build. If we think a little bit more clinically about it, if we think about someone who has experienced trauma right, or childhood trauma- okay anxiety they can do really well for years and years and years to suppress that and that was that thing that happened when i was 5 and whatever and then they get to 25 30 and they start to experience anxiety in regards to it yeah maybe where the trauma occurred mm. people who were associated with that trauma yeah and you don't want to go and see them and you experience anxiety yeah we can definitely unpack it and see that anxiety has been built off this idea of keeping you safe because you've experienced something before that's been a threat to you, whether that's physically or emotionally. But it can also just be it's sort of anxiety is this creation of of a range of things that don't really make sense in the moment. Yeah. So perhaps an example of that, just a hypothetical one is, you know, say we've got someone who already has this low self-esteem. They're quite self-criticizing and they're really worried about their work performance. And they, they talk themselves down quite a lot. Perhaps they're probably often the people that do quite well at work. They're, they're meeting their KPIs, but they're really hard on themselves. Yeah. And perhaps, and then there's added stressor that uh, they have to keep their job because of financial stresses, because they've just had to put their car, they had an accident, they've had to put their car in for repair. Yeah. Okay? So they've got this... Base level or this predisposing element of being really low in self-esteem that had a precipitating uh, event, which is the car accident. That's just uh, that's an every not an everyday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that Something shit happens. happens. Yeah. life happens, right? Yeah. But it's stressful. So then they have to get to work. So they start taking the bus. Now, this is a new stressor. Most people go, well, we're just taking the bus. Yeah. But where is the bus stop? What you time does it leave? You can't rely Buses on it. Buses are stressful. Buses are yeah. so stressful. I had, to,
1: I had to catch the bus once because I had had a car accident. And I didn't know what side of the road to stand on. I didn't mm-hmm. know what stop to get off. Yeah, and then you have to worry about, like, who are going to sit next to? and Is someone going to talk to you? And-, yeah. and I think it cost me the same as an Uber at that time.
3: Yeah. yeah. So there's all these little things that are new in your routine. This is a new stressor. Okay, so we're starting to build what we often call like that stress cup. Perhaps that person then is sitting on the bus and they experience a panic attack or what we know as a panic attack. And they're like, it doesn't really make sense because it's not like there's this imminent threat. It's not like a saber-toothed tiger has got on the bus. Yeah. So why am I having a panic attack? And then often it, that people will then try to reason it. It's like, well, maybe you know, maybe I'm just hopeless. Like I can't even catch the bus without having this experience. Mm. But what we're seeing is we've got this big melting pot of all these different things happening. Yeah. Okay. Where we've got all this stress, we've got this predisposing factors of low self-esteem. Okay. We've got this imminent stress of the car accident and financials. And if the bus runs late and then I get to work, we've got all these thoughts perhaps going off. Yeah. But And that can lead to a panic attack.
2: Yeah.
0: Because yeah. the
3: body is just at its capacity. It's almost like signaling like, I can't
0: cope. And then when you're having a panic attack, then it is it's so that, like, mental thing of, like, why can't I do this simple task that everyone else can yeah. do? Like, what is wrong with me? Like, mm-hmm. I, I suck. And then mm-hmm. it's then afterwards, because having a panic attack is such, like, an exhausting experience mm-hmm. physically. Yeah. And afterwards you're tired and then mm-hmm. you feel worse. Yeah. And then you're anxious about the
3: next time it's going to happen. Absolutely. It's just, like, such a um, – It it becomes this cycle, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, to sum that up, it's, yes, you can have traumatic events happen and that can be anxiety and panic attacks trying to signal and it's like lights going off, like be aware, but seemingly they can come out of nowhere. Yeah. Right, It can just be from this, it's almost like this recipe of things have come together and then the cake that's being baked is a panic attack. Yeah. And, again, we get in our heads because it's like, well, why did that happen? Am I just useless? Like, Yeah. Yeah hundred percent.
1: And are people predisposed to anxiety?
3: Yeah. So we know that there is a genetic element. So we can see that there's a family history there. That doesn't mean that you will get it. Like if you've got parents who experience anxiety, that doesn't mean that you're just going to get it. Yeah. We can also though observe it, right? So if we we can kind of, because again, it's a protective response.
1: Yeah. if If you did have two anxious parents- That Mm. like like if you think about environment, you would Mm. know I lack a lot of anxiety in your life.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it could just be that if I've watched, you know, my parents work around anxiety Mm. and try to suppress it and push it away and not potentially cope with it overly well, then perhaps those things, those are things I need to be wary of.
2: Yeah, Um, but
3: not always, right? So again, we hear there's plenty of people who would have parents who are anxious or experience panic attacks, and they never will. Yeah. Because they can see it from the outside perspective that, oh, catching the bus, that's okay. Yeah. Crashing yeah. your car, well, life happens, like all of these things. Yeah,
0: or well, they go in the opposite direction as well. Yes. Be like, I'm never going to be anxious. Anymore. Yes.
3: And I have that confidence then, which yeah. I think can play a lot into it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And different personalities and stuff as well.
1: I saw a quote recently that like really resonated with me. But absolutely would not resonate with someone with anxiety. And it was something along the lines of like, by worrying about something that may not happen, you're potentially living it twice.
3: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Which
1: to me, I'm like, yeah, cool, don't worry about it. Mm. But that's not effective. Yeah. If you have. Diagnose yeah. anxiety. But I can
0: appreciate why that makes sense. <laughs> One of the very famous things Michael Jordan says is like, Why would I worry about like when asked, like, what happens if you miss that shot like that you've missed before? And he says, Why
3: would I worry about something that's not even happened yeah. yet? Yeah. Or might not even happen. So again, and you're right, as a someone who experiences anxiety, we can read or hear that quote and go, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when you're in it, yeah. it's hard to it's hard to see that and think yeah. that. Um, And I think that's another thing if listeners – if someone's listening and you do experience quite intense anxiety or perhaps you have, you know, experienced an anxiety disorder, when we're talking about things today, it's not to sound dismissive. No. Yeah, because, again, in this state, when we're talking in a podcast, we're talking in a very rational, logical kind of space. Yeah. So if you hear a technique and you're like, oh, like that's going to work, or like you know, that's a little bit sounds a bit Captain Obvious. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're talking about in a very logical, yeah. logical space. I'm willing to
0: take any of your advice because right now my panic attack uh, thing is, you're not going to die. This isn't going to kill you. You're not going to die. This isn't going to kill you. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> actually, one of my friends said to me recently, like she experiences anxiety, and like one of the things she thinks is like, well, if I go outside the house today, what if I die? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was just like, what? Like I I just, I don't think like that. And that's why we're here talking mm -hmm. about this, to like normalise these experiences Mm -hmm. and to help people on the other side understand or, you know, just saying, well, just don't worry about that. That's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into that in
3: a little bit. To go back to that point, we can sort of see how some people are predisposed to anxiety or we would suspect that they would experience it more than other people. I think if we go back to this idea of anxiety and how it has like a positive role in our life and when we talk about in regards to athletes but it also applies to us you know everyday people we talk about optimal zones of functioning okay so if you think about a graphs or a graph or a graph (laughs) (laughs) and you have your vertical and your horizontal axis or your y and your x axis okay so on the vertical axis you have your performance or the thing that you're you're doing yeah and along the base you have anxiety so what I would like you to try and picture is an upside down you or yep. an arc in that graph. So what we can see is, is that when we are under-activated, we don't have enough anxiety or arousal to get the job done. Yep. Okay. When we then flip to the other end of that arc, we have too much anxiety, we're over-activated. Yep. Okay. And that's where we see that we can't perform. Yep. When we talk about optimal zones of functioning, we're talking about that peak in the arc where we have enough anxiety that we get peak performance. Okay. So for example, this could be, you might experience a little bit of nervousness. It might tap, tap into a little bit of anxiety because you've got really important KPIs to meet. Yeah. So you need that physiological arousal to kind of get you going to get the job done. You know I mean? You might be preparing for a big speaking event. So I spoke at a conference last year and I had anxiety beforehand. Yeah. I also had the strategies in place, though, to be able to reframe it. But I knew walking in that if I didn't have some level of anxiety, I wouldn't perform. Yeah. Not that it's a performance, but I wouldn't get the task done the way that I want.
1: Like you're anxious because it's important to you.
3: Yes. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, like, you need to have a certain care factor because if you don't have any sort of nervousness, anxiety about it, you don't really care about it, you're not going to put in your best effort.
3: Yeah. And it might not be that you don't care about, but if you're just a bit like meh about it, so a prime example that I have is in my master's degree In quite early on, I failed a really big assessment and it was live. So I had a panel in another room looking in through a video camera, kind of assessing me and I failed and they pulled me out around halfway through and they're like, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. And then I continued to fail, right? So, and I had to resit later on and then I passed. But what happened in that is I had got so, I don't think it was relaxed, but I walked in just so like, yeah, just an assessment. Yeah. I was under activated. Yeah. Right. So then when I had this actor who was playing a client, play a really difficult client, I wasn't up there. Yeah. I couldn't match it because I was almost a little bit too relaxed. I was a little bit too like, oh yeah, I've yeah. done this before. Like, this great. Fine. This is fine. So this is where we can see. And also things too, like if you're walking into a netball grand final right, or a school swimming carnival, if you have a degree of nervousness and anxiety beforehand, it's actually okay. And by accepting that, and we'll go through this in, the, in a moment, but by accepting that and understanding that, hey, this is okay, the anxiety, the the dysfunctional anxiety that we'll talk about in a moment backs off. Yeah. Yeah. So we, if anxiety has a function, it's okay. Yeah. And we can work to accept that, then in turn it, it makes it functional. Yeah. It, it has a purpose. Yeah. But going back to this idea of people, different people being different, the optimal zones of functioning are different for everyone. Yeah. Okay, so it's important that we don't compare people. So you watch them oh, they just seem to do it so easy. Yeah. Again, that's perception. Yeah. Right? But it could be that their optimal zone of functioning. So, again, if we go back to the graph, right, depending on the task, my upside down you might be down this end, and your you might be upside down you, yeah. might be down the other end. Yeah. Okay. So, we can we can all have these different capacities at any moment in time, again, depending on the task, to enter that optimal zone of functioning. And it's different for everyone. Yeah. This is sometimes when we also see two people who we perhaps, or they comment, they go, I'm really confident in this area of my life. Yeah. You asked me to do this particular task and I crumble. Yeah. I'm an anxious mess. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where it gets again. We often try to look at other people as a benchmark and go, well, they can do it. So I should be able, able to do it. And it's like, we're all different.
1: Yeah. yeah. And maybe even how they outwardly like project that as well. Like they might be feeling really mm. anxious about it, but appear really calm or vice mm. versa. They might appear... Yeah, really really anxious, but they have channeled that into a positive.
3: Yeah, so that's the, in psychology terms, we call the duck, right? So psychologists, particularly when we're learning, right, we're a duck. So we have this outward facade of calmness. We're just gliding across the water, right? on the inside, we are panicking. We've got our feet under the water and we're scrambling. Like this client has said something and holy shit, I actually don't know what to say back. Yeah. Right. And that's a normal experience. But as psychologists, we become very, again, accepting of that. Yeah. Then in turn, there's been countless times, right? Maybe this is like a psychologist secret. I don't know. But there's been numerous times that clients tell me things and I'm like, wow, i really got to think about this. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what the next avenue is. Right. So the duck feet Kick off. Yeah. But because I just know that's part of the process, I seemingly can just sit with that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. I know the direction here.
2: Yeah.
0: Right.
3: And go back into that gliding duck state. Yeah. I like
0: that. I can definitely identify when there's situations that I've been in that I'm like, oh, I'm so surprised I'm not anxious, but it is because I'm confident like in speaking about that topic or in going in to do Mm. that thing. And then I'll have to do something really simple. Like you were saying before, you think it's interesting that I have such bad anxiety, but I'm like really good at meeting people and stuff like that because I feel really confident in that.
3: So I think in certain situations. Yeah. And you build that self-reinforcement. Yeah. So if you, again, in that task, I say it's a task, but the the task of meeting people, yeah. you have confidence because you've approached Tegan and now you're best mates or good mates and, like, so it reinforces. So it goes well. So it's like, well, if I can meet Tegan, I can approach someone else. And yeah. I can approach someone else and it's, so you've got confidence in that space. I think it is It Sarah's Day. She's on YouTube and Instagram and she talks about, like, her mantra of, like, act confident and no one will know. Yeah. No one really knows. But what that what I like about that is is that if you act confident, even if you're experiencing anxiety and you do the thing, and we'll get into this a little bit later on. Again, not to sound dismissive, this is really hard if you're experiencing tense anxiety.
2: Yeah.
0: But then it is like,
3: oh, well, I can do that. Yeah, like you trick yourself into doing
1: it. You're stacking yeah. the evidence that you can do You're stacking the
3: evidence it. and you're also building those neural pathways. Yeah. Right. So sometimes I explain it to clients. It's like if you go trail running or bushwalking, there's always a really well-worn trail, okay? So if that is an anxiety trail, so avoiding going to the supermarket at a certain time, I just keep walking. That there's a really not well-worn track through there. That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> track through there, right? So that's the automatic kind of way to go. Yeah. But sometimes when you go bushwalking or trail running, you notice that there's like this random like trail off to the side. Yeah. Now whether you should go on that one or not, I don't know. But for the sake of this example, it's like well, that's someone taking a different path. Yeah. So the first few times, it's going to feel really uneasy. Yeah. And really rocky because it's not well-worn. Yeah. Like going to the supermarket at a busy time. Yeah. Yeah. But the more times you do it, then that that part of the track becomes the more automatic one. Yeah. So that's sort of how it works from a neural pathway perspective.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's the that's such an easy, good way to break it down. I've heard people try and break that down before. I'm like, I don't understand that at all.
1: It's cool.
0: So, Em, when does normal anxiety become something more concerning?
3: Yeah. So, it's really common for clients or people who say, like, I just don't want to feel anxious. Hopefully, by now, we've sort of got the, the idea that, no, we actually do want to have space for anxiety. It has a very important role and function. Most of the time, though, when people are saying, like, I just don't want this anxiety, I just don't want to feel like this, what they're talking about is the anxiety that's causing them significant dysfunction and or distress. So in the examples that we've kind of gone over just recently, the anxiety has a, has a function. Yeah. Yeah. So it has a positive reason and function as to why it's occurring. And while it might not be the most pleasant experience, right, so I'm not selling an anxiety experience yeah. as a great time, like let's just go and have more of it, it's not to an extent that it's causing you distress. Okay, so it might cause you stress, But distress, we can kind of think about on like this sliding up scale, we have stress first, then we go into distress. That's like, yeah, a lot more intense and severe. Okay. So the anxiety, it's a bit stressful, it's yucky, it's icky, but it's not causing you distress. Yeah. Because that's sort of what we would class as like quote unquote normal anxiety. So when we start to perhaps prick our ears up a little bit and go, okay, what's actually going on here is when the anxiety is causing the distress and dysfunction, These are really clinical terms. I understand that you're like, what's dysfunction? So let's go through that. Keep in mind if if you think, oh my gosh, yes, this is me. Um, Please don't diagnose yourself, but it could be some things for you to keep an eye on. Okay. So, and you can note these things down, right? In your notes, in your phone, in your diary, maybe just reflecting at the end of the day across these things. Uh, Because if you do go to happen to see your GP or a psychologist, that can be really useful info.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: And often when we're in the anxiety experience, we have a hard time remembering it.
0: Yes. This is like one of my biggest tips for people that that I always say, and literally someone was going to see a psychologist the other day and I was like, write down everything. Yeah. Because even just the pressure – of being in that room yes. and having to remember it all. It's mm. like everything goes out of your head that you've ever experienced in your life. Yeah.
3: And I think sometimes people feel a bit self-conscious about being like, oh, I'll get my notepad and tell you all my dot point yeah. symptoms. But I don't anymore. <laughs> but no, it's great because as a psychologist, yeah. I say to my clients, like, I don't expect you to remember everything that happens in the next week, in the next two weeks before I next see you. So notes in your phone or a little journal that you can keep in a safe place where no one else will read it to note these experiences down because it, it makes sense that when someone goes to you, okay, so what's been happening the past two or three weeks, you go, oh, uh, I, I don't know. Like I can't remember yesterday yeah, because that's how anxiety works. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the things that we, when if we go through dysfunction, so w- what we like to think about is three areas of life. So work slash occupation, social and sleep. And what we're thinking about is the last two to three weeks. Okay. And we use, again, this as a very rough timeline because, again, the fleeting of experience of anxiety is normal. Yeah. Yeah. But persistent um, or, yeah, persistent anxiety is the thing that we're looking out for. What we see is also the anxiety is really intense and perhaps it's excessive, okay, and it's fear about everyday situations. So as we've spoken before, the amount of anxiety isn't warranted for the task or the experience. So when we're talking, let's go through those three. So over the past two to three weeks, Work or occupation. So what we mean by that is like your employed work or working for yourself. You might be a stay-at-home parent. You might be retired. You might be studying. So that's what we mean by occupation. What you might find is that the anxiety is leading you to be absent. Yeah. yeah. So you're not rocking up to work or you're getting there and then you're going home. You might find that and you can create a really clear link that the anxiety is leading you to not make your KPIs or that you have an excessive amount of worry about making your KPIs or getting a certain mark in an assessment, or whatever it may be. We then look at socials, okay, so saying that you'll go to things and then pulling out last minute, right, or going and then going home. Yeah. Straight away. Again, you're linking it to an anxiety experience. So, again, those Thoughts, so the catastrophizing or all or nothing sort of thinking that if I go there, everyone's going to look at me, right? Or the and or the physiological response of anxiety. You might be avoiding social interactions, so staying at home is a really common one. Yeah, and also then we look at sleep okay, So sleep is the third area where again anxiety is causing you to experience like a difficulty falling asleep, and that's not normal for you. Mm. Your mind is running anxiety type thoughts, or you might find that you fall asleep okay, but then you wake up at two a.m. Yeah, thinking about things, and you can't get. Back to sleep. And usually, this is also characterized that you wake up and you feel like trash. Yeah. So, you're not getting a restful night Mm. of sleep. So, across those three areas, anxiety is linked to again dysfunction, right? So, the anxiety is not helpful across any of those three areas the last two to three weeks. And it's important too that you keep in mind your individual point of reference. So, for example, if you're introverted like me, yeah, right, and a bit of a homebody, right, and you haven't been going to every social event that you've been invited to, over the past two weeks, but normally I might go to one social thing a month. Yeah. Maybe it's not anxiety.
2: Yeah. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. So, again, you've got to look at what your normal base reference point is. And this is where, you know, making a diagnosis can be really tricky. Like we have criteria that a client will need to meet to be able to provide a diagnosis. Yeah. But then we have to take into individual consideration that person. And also cultural factors as well. Yeah. So we can see that sometimes people who identify with different cultures Right. Different things will lead to anxiety of what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. Yeah. So that's the dysfunction sort of side of things. We then also look at the distress. So you might go, well, actually, no, like over the past two to three weeks, my life across those three areas is as is. I'm still going to social events. I'm perceiving I'm sleeping okay. I'm still going to work. But when we talk about distress, what we're talking about here is is that you're you're still experiencing anxiety and you're pushing through. Yeah. Yeah. So the experience is really enduring. And I would say probably the best kind of word, it's really awful and it's really horrible. Yeah. Like you're sticking at it, but it's just a gross, yucky, it's a hard experience. And again- the, the level of distress doesn't make sense to the task at hand, right? So you've been shopping at Coles or Woolworths or IGA or wherever you like to go mm. twice a week for the past 10 years and maybe even you've been going to the same Coles or Woolworths, yeah. right? And then recently you're finding you pull up into the car park and you're experiencing anxiety before you head in, okay? And this is where we start to look at things through these experiences where we start to have a feeling of dread or doom and that yes. links to being like, I'm going to die, Right, it feels like I'm going to die. Yeah, the impending doom. The impending doom is really big. And again, we can have those array of physical anxiety symptoms that we've spoken about before. So again, grocery shopping is not your favourite thing to do, but the amount of anxiety that you're experiencing is not warranted to the task at hand. And this is then when we see, when we've spoken about before, it starts to compound on itself. Right, So I'm sitting in the car park, experience anxiety for something that i've normally done right and i'm going to push through this so again it's going to cause distress but then our thinking styles start to shape around that so that all or nothing thinking or that catastrophizing you know for example oh well i must be really hopeless if i can't even walk into Coles and i can't think of a reason why this is happening but for goodness sake i'm a grown adult my kid can do this like those sorts (laughs) of thoughts you know or again that anxiety about being anxious where it's catastrophizing so it's like but what if I go in there and I start experiencing anxiety or I have a panic attack? Like, how am I going to get out? Yeah. I've driven here. Like, how am I going to get the car home? i got to pick the kids up at three. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do? Like, and all these people are going to look at me and there'll be no one there to help me. Yeah. Yeah. So this is when we talk about like, you're still doing life yeah, the things, but it's quite frankly, it's quite shit. It's yeah. quite awful. Like it's, it's yuck. It's yeah. Yeah.
0: I had like my anxiety probably like it was really bad last year because i like being really sick all the time. And I had this like regular meeting that I go to like once a month at school. <laughs> everyone who's listening probably knows what it is. And I went one, like I was fine with going even though I'd like sit up the front and like have to talk and stuff, which is like whatever, fine. And then one time I went and I was sick mm-hmm. and I had to leave. Like I was sitting at the front and everyone had walked in and I went and I like threw up and then I had to go and get my stuff and leave. And mm-hmm. everyone was looking at me and I wanted to die. Mm-hmm. And all my friends reassured me that it was fine. They're like, they probably just thought you were sick and you mm-hmm. left or you got a call and like no one thought a thing of it. Mm-hmm. When I was just like, holy shit, they are all like, what is wrong with this girl? Mm-hmm. And then the next time I went, I had a full, well, actually I didn't go to the next one because I was having a panic attack and didn't Mm -hmm. go. And then the next one I forced myself to go to Mm -hmm. and I sat there and I was like, I'm going to fucking die. I'm having a heart attack. Like this is, couldn't feel my hands. Like this is how it ends. And I'm like sweating and I was about to leave, but I couldn't leave because the meeting started Mm -hmm. and I was about to cry. Mm
2: -hmm. And then I
0: like got my notebook out and I started doodling. Until it like went away. Yeah. And then I started like breathing. And then mm-hmm. I was so proud of myself. Yeah. Because I worked myself out of it, which is like something I've never been able to do. Mm-hmm. And I, But it was
3: not pleasant. Like mm-hmm. it was horrific. Yeah. Yes. And that's when we talk about in a moment, we'll talk about in clinical terms, behavioral activation. So doing the thing that where you experience anxiety because of that, if you can in that instance, and it's you've done that so well, because if you can get through that, it's like, oh, Actually, I can do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, for people listening, they're like, I would, you know, Emma, I would really love to do that. Like clients say that, you know, I'd really love to just do it. Thanks, Captain Obvious.
0: Yeah. But it's hard.
3: That's taken like,
0: I would say 15 years to be able to do, like literally 15 years. I'm not exaggerating, maybe 20.
3: That's the first time I've ever been able to do that. Yeah. So, and we'll go through this when we're talking about strategies and treatment and a little bit later on. But some of my clients just bringing up the idea of, what if you you know, walked into college or you went to that meeting while you're experiencing anxiety? And they're like, oh, that gives me anxiety right now. Yeah, I'm like, great, good starting place. And when you sit in that space for weeks or months until the anxiety, the thought of it dissipates and then we make the next move. So, again, if you're listening and going, there is just no way that I could action or do the thing where it's causing, where the anxiety lives, know that that's completely normal. Yeah, yeah. So how common is
1: a more formal diagnosis of anxiety and what might that look like or entail?
3: Yeah. So anxiety is super common. Yeah. So if we look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics or ABS, across 2000 to 2022, more than one in six Australians aged 16 to 85 years had a 12-month anxiety disorder. So when we say 12 month anxiety disorder at the time at which the survey is given to people, they're saying in the last 12 months, have you had this experience? Right. Yes. Yeah, so that's what that means. Um, so when we're looking at one in six Australians, that is uh, around 17.2% of the population or 3.4 million people. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So these stats make anxiety the most common cluster of mental disorders. So in psychology, we have these clusters Right, So affective disorders, that's more like includes your major depressive disorders and, and depression in general. Anxiety has a range of diagnosis embedded within it. So it's the biggest cluster. And we could probably say that's actually those stats are probably on the lower side. Yeah. Right, because we still experience stigma with people reporting their experiences, perhaps people not understanding that what they're experiencing is anxiety. Yeah. Right. And so they go, they don't, it doesn't really resonate with them until yeah. they read, and they go, oh, actually, yeah, that is my experience. Yeah. So we would probably say that, yeah, it's a little bit underreported as well, which makes those stats even more outstanding. Yeah. So when we're looking at then what it actually entails, if we look at like a more specific anxiety disorder embedded in that, uh, anxiety cluster. We're looking at things such as generalized anxiety disorder, or sometimes it's called GAD because we all psychologists love acronyms, <laughs> um, specific phobias, social anxiety disorder, uh, agoraphobia, so the anxiety about having anxiety. Oh, yeah. Or being in a space where you can't get out. Yeah. Um, so I like, learned that on. Boy Swallows Universe. Oh, the dad has it. Right. Yeah. Good, good reading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and panic disorder. And then there are other few in there as well. So keeping in mind, we're talking about adult populations. So there are specific anxiety disorders in regards to children. Yeah. Or they most likely occur in childhood. What we can see that, so all of these, all of these titles, all of these disorders are anxiety based, but then they all have their specific nuances as to what makes them a specific disorder Yeah, and they differ. So in what kind of happens is that anxiety differs in regards to what the anxiety is about. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it a unique disorder.
0: And then obviously you've got all the anxieties associated with other mental health yes. issues.
3: Yeah, right. for sure. So we see anxiety as, standalone disorders, right? But then we can see anxiety uh, being comorbid with other things. So sometimes, you know, I like to say to our students, when we're teaching this at uni, it's like quite often depression and anxiety are like cousins or best friends or siblings. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really, and comorbidity is really, is really high. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense because as you were saying before, when you've Got you know stomach complaints, yeah. Right, anxiety is associated with that, yeah. Right, with a physical experience, yeah. I certainly know that when I'm you know I've got the flu or whatever, my mental health is not as great, like right? yeah. because you're predisposed then to experience anxiety and depression a lot more. Yeah. But we can also then see this with other mental health concerns, right? Yeah. Because if you've got, for example, if you're experiencing depression to the point where you don't leave your house. Yeah. Then your brain might go, well, maybe there's things to be scared about. Yeah. Oh, here comes anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> just, Hi, my friend. Yeah, just another thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So
0: where do panic attacks come into the picture and what is a panic attack?
3: Yes. So panic attacks feature as a particular type of fear response. Okay. So remember how I said before, we often have experience of fear and then anxiety, right? So in this instance, we have fear than a panic attack. They're not limited to the anxiety disorders and they can be seen in other mental health illnesses or other mental illnesses as well. But then a panic attack can be a standalone experience, right? So you might have no mental health complaints at all. Yeah. And then one day you have a panic attack. And again, that can, part of the panic attack is like, well, why did I have this? Yeah. Right. We also have panic disorder, right? And that's where we have unexpected panic attacks occurring quite a lot, right? So that's its own diagnosis among other things. So panic attacks, yeah, again, they're in the picture there by themselves with other things. Yeah. So the definition of a panic attack, so a panic attack is an abrupt surge of intense fear or intense discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes. The abrupt surge can occur from a calm state or an anxious state. During the surge, you might experience a range of physiological responses. So a racing heart, sweating, shaking, shortness of breath, feeling like you're choking, chest pain or discomfort, nausea, dizziness, Chills or heat sensations uh, or tingling, and then from a thoughts perspective, you might have a, this feeling of unreality, otherwise known as derealization or depersonalization. So that's being detached or feeling like you're detached from oneself. You might have a fear of losing control, or a lot of people describe it. They think they're going crazy. Yeah, that's how they kind of sum it up. And or you might have a fear of dying or a sense of doom. So a panic attack is distinguished of so how we can kind of spot it is it's time to peak intensity, right? So it's quick. So anxiety can mull. Mm. It can be lower state and it's just there all the time and it's gross and it's yuck. Panic attack surge. Yeah. They, f- and again, it can come from a calm state, but boom, it's yeah. like it's on. And again, it tends to be quite severe. The, ex- the experience of the panic attack itself, it's quite severe yeah. And intense. Yeah. Um, so that is what a panic attack
0: yes. is. The first time I had a panic attack, I was 16 Yeah, and I thought I like I was like, I'm, I've had a heart attack, tight chest. I felt like pain under my arms, like it's a physical pain, mm-hmm. felt that depersonalization, like I wasn't in my body anymore. I start crying like mm-hmm. uncontrollably mm-hmm. and then I feel like I can't feel my feet mm-hmm. and I can't believe that I'm still on the ground. Like mm-hmm. I feel like I'm like floating in yes. the air yep. and I was like, well, this is it, I'm dying. And yep. then it goes away. Yep. But then you're left with all of that.
3: The aftermath. Aftermath. Yeah, yep. absolutely. So there's a really good book. It's quite old now. I think it was, I was looking at it the other day, 1993 by Bev Eisberg, and it's called Living With It. So she talks about a panic attack of being an it. So, again, this other, this creature. Um, but I think, you know, I've sort of got a blurb here that I can read out from the start of the book. Um, so for context, she's a cartoonist. Yeah. right? And the book is actually really great, You know, if you know someone who's experiencing panic attacks and they're not sure what's going on, or perhaps you're experiencing panic attacks and you want to try and explain it to someone else, this book is a really light read. It's really thin and she describes it with pictures and words. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be a really good one. But this helps illustrate how a panic attack can happen when you think you're calm or you're seemingly calm. So she says, I first encountered my it on a glorious blue day in Sydney on what was meant to be a pleasant weekend visit to attend the Australian National Cartoonist Awards. The sky was a flawless canopy, the yachts bobbed cheerily on the harbour. Tourists snapped photos of smiling friends on the foreshore and there I stood, struck by the enormity of what I was experiencing. Most people remember their first panic attack. It is overwhelming, utterly terrifying and remains etched in the memory for a long time afterwards. So I think this can really illustrate this story that she builds. It's like, there was nothing imminent right then and there. Yeah. And then seemingly I'm calm. I'm, you know, looking at the blue sky and it's a beautiful day. And perhaps she was looking forward to the awards and whatnot and this panic attack can, can occur. And this is when we start to explore that there's two different types of panic attacks, right? So there's an expected panic attack and an unexpected. So as the name suggests, an expected panic attack uh, occurs when there's an obvious cue or trigger, okay? so And typically where panic attacks have occurred before that tends to be where that happens. An unexpected panic attack is when there is no obvious cue or trigger at the time of the occurrence, right? So you might feel calm, relaxed. There's nothing really on your mind. A panic attack occurs. So if we're experiencing an expected panic attack, there's this clear trigger, right? So as I was saying earlier on, if you've experienced humiliation when you've been public speaking before, And again, you can reason it that, you know, kids are dumb, they do stupid things. You might even have compassion for that bully, right? But emotionally that's still triggering, right? So now when you go to present again, right, and you could tell yourself in front of very supportive work employees or, or people, you know, in your life, your brain has made that neural pathway and that association. So keep in mind, again, the function of anxiety and here panic attacks is to try and keep you safe. Don't do that. Public speaking event because you'll get laughed at. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, when we look at an unexpected panic attack, it can be really hard for people to comprehend, and that's where there's that sense of there's that sense of going crazy, like wh- holy shit, like where did this come from? I must be psycho like I must be crazy that's what clients say to me right I'm like no not crazy this is a panic attack it's unexpected yeah because again they can't pinpoint where it's come from but as we've said before there might be in that example I gave before about the lady or the person on the bus there might be this be this melting pot of all these psychological factors and current stresses and whatnot that meld together right to produce a panic attack and so this recipe is created you know so I've got a personal example so my first panic attack I was in grade nine And I was on the way to a school camp in Canberra. Yeah. You know, the fucking grade nine, man. Grade nine. Right. Yeah. And maybe there's some hormonal changes and things happening there that could play into this. I'm not too sure. But I distinctly remember sitting on the bus and I was on the window side. And I think at that time, iPod shuffles were a big thing. And I had my iPod (laughs) shuffle in. and skinny
2: ones. Yeah. Yeah, They're the best.
3: Yep. And I was looking at the window and we were between Armored and Tamworth. uh, And I can remember the part of the road where this had occurred, It's kind of like this rock face up the right hand side. And I was just listening to my music and I was looking out the window. And then I felt it was like from the top of my crown of my head all the way down to my toes, I went cold. But it was like this, it was like this scan. It wasn't just like I was instantly cold. It like, again, started from the top and it was like it was water pouring over me. And then I felt sick in the stomach. And I was like, what's going on? Like, and I felt numb and I felt tingly. And I said to my friend, I said to her, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be sick. And she's like, oh, do you want me to tell the teacher? They said, you know, if you feel if you feel that you're bus sick or car sick, like, you've got to let them know. I'm like, no, no, no. Like I don't think I'm going to be sick though. I feel sick, but I'm not going to be sick. And then I just sat there and I breathed and then it went away. So probably now what I know is if I look back on that, I hated school camps. Yeah. Right. I didn't go to the one in grade seven. I went to the one in grade eight and I hated it. It just wasn't my thing. No. Right. I just, I love school, (laughs) but going on school camp, I was like, I'll just go home for a week. Like, But here I am in grade nine and I'm like, right, yeah, I'm going to go to Canberra. Like I'm full of enthusiasm. I'm like willing to go. I'm willing to have a good time. But there was still probably part of my brain that was like, remember, this is the thing that you don't like. Yeah. right. And you can't get off that bus. Can't get off that bus, right, at a subconscious level, right? So it's kind of just eating away at the back of my head. And that's probably what was happening in that moment. I think, again, too, that think about that personal example, I can then remember being 18 at Sydney Airport and I was going to Europe by myself. It was my first overseas trip and I was going by myself. And I think I had about a five-hour wait at Sydney Airport. And I think I probably spent about four and a half hours in the bathroom panicking. Yeah. And again, I was like, but I want to go overseas. Like I've saved for this. I paid for it all myself. I'd been working really hard. I was like, why am I panicking? Like what's going on? Yeah. From the moment I walked onto that plane, it was like a switch flicked. And it was like, great, I'm fine now, like. And still to this day, and I've been very privileged and lucky to go overseas a lot, still to this day, There's like this little bit now it's just nervousness. It's like that little like, ooh. Um, So now I would say that I don't have a panic attack before going overseas. Yeah. And there's probably this low-level anxiety or nervousness because I'm going to a different country. Perhaps I don't speak English, right? That's part of the adventure. I don't know how the money works and, you know, we've got to get there and we're flying and it's just all those different things. But I'm now able to reason it that it's just me being on alert and that's actually not a bad thing when you leave the country to be on a little bit higher of alert and still have a good time. Yeah. So this is how we can see, though, that if perhaps I didn't get on that plane when I was 18 and got the next flight back to Armidale, it probably would have reinforced that that's something to be scared of and that's something not to do,
2: Yeah. right,
3: Mm. where now I've lived a life of, you know, I'm going to India in three weeks and going to Greece in six months and it's like, woohoo, like this is amazing. But this is where we can kind of see that, you know, perhaps there are some things that have happened in life that you're quote unquote over, Right, that you got over, but it's still anxiety just doing its job, right? Yeah. We could maybe hypothesise, and again, I don't know Bev, the author of that Living With It book, but perhaps we can hypothesise that, oh, maybe she's up for an award. Yeah. Perhaps a little bit nervous about attending an award. Going perhaps there stage. was travel stress getting to Sydney, Yeah, right? maybe hasn't been there before, right? So again, she may have had previous experience that have led to this panic attack, but in this seemingly calm state, there could just again be this melting pot of different thoughts that we've got, Right, different experiences that then lead to a panic attack. Yeah.
0: Is there a way of rewiring those neural pathways? That you were talking about before.
3: Yeah, for sure. So this is when we can start to look at different strategies. So if you work with a psychologist, we'd probably look at cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. Yeah. Or we would look at acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise known as ACT. Yeah. So when we look at, for example, you know, and CBT is generally classed as like the gold standard. It has a lot of research and that's why it's used a lot. It doesn't work for all clients though. So just keep that in mind that, you know, you and your psychologist, if you see one, can talk about what's the best option for you. But when we talk about rewiring those neural pathways, we're really talking about taking different action, so behaviours, or changing our thoughts to rewire that, right? And, again, this is not an easy feat. You just, you know, what do people say? It's like, oh, just, you know, think happy thoughts. And you're like, thanks, Captain Obvious. That's not going to help right now. Like, (laughs) thank you so much. You can't
0: remember happy thoughts when you're in the middle of that. That makes me feel worse (laughs) because I can't. Right.
3: But if we look at a CBT perspective and, and these neural pathways, what we're looking at, or well, you can think about a triangle. So at one point you've got feelings, another uh, point you've got your thoughts, another point you've got action. So in the feeling currently, panic attacks and or anxiety, okay? We might have the behaviors. I'm not going to Coles. I'm not going to that meeting. I'm not going overseas. Hell, I ain't going on a plane, Yeah, right? So that's avoidance. And then we have thoughts, I'm hopeless. Everyone else can do this. Or it could be more thoughts around the doom side of things. If I go there and I die, no one will come and get me. If I go there and have a panic attack, how am I going to drive the car home and then pick up the kids? right. So all we can see is the the triangle is then self-reinforcing. And that's when we start to get the neural pathways happening as well. We keep treading these same paths. So what CBT does is we go, okay, well, we can look to change the thoughts. So we talk about challenging the thoughts or what's the evidence. What is the evidence that if you went to Coles, everyone would stare at you. Yeah. What is the evidence that if you went to the gym, everyone would be looking at and judging you, right? So we yeah. start to look for evidence and challenge it and then we start to create more functional thoughts, right? And that's when we talk about thinking, start up like all or nothing, thinking, catastrophizing. Yeah. yeah. If we can change the thoughts that might ch- start to change our behaviours or start to change our feelings or both and they lead into one another. Yeah. Or we might start more with a behavioural approach. So we look to change your actions, right? So in addition to giving you other strategies, it's like, hey, could you go to Kohl's with your partner? Yeah. yeah. Or again, you know, so I've had a client where we've worked on this. So even just talking about going to Kohl's created anxiety. Yeah. We got to a point where that was no longer anxiety provoking. Yeah. Then the next step, when we call this like exposure therapy, so we gradually expose you to the thing or the situation situation where anxiety occurs until you don't feel anxiety anymore. And then we go to the next step and then you'll feel worse again right? That's part of the process, but you're going up the next step, right? So with, for example, with this client, it was like, okay, we made this exposure, what we call exposure hierarchy or or a ladder. So at this level, you're going to go to Coles at 6pm on a Friday night with your partner. And then they kept doing that until she's like, yeah, that's easy. I'm, I'm doing it. I can, yep, I know I can do it. The next step was like, okay, can you do it for two nights across the week? Or it could be any sort of variation that makes it a little bit harder, right? Or, okay, we get to the point now can you drive with your partner to the car park and then you go in by yourself yeah. because you know that there's a way to get home because your partner's going to drive yeah do that until yep normal yep great fine cool now can you drive yourself so eventually you get to the goal so you got to think about what's your goal yeah if your goal goal is to go and do this yourself with minimal anxiety that's your 100 level and you break it down yeah. right but you don't move on I say to my clients and perhaps I'm a little bit um veer on the side of caution but We don't move on until you come in here and you go, me going with my partner to the shops is stupid. I can do that. You're so confident and cocky. Then we move on. Yeah. Yeah. Or you feel that that. you can take your next step. So when we talk about rebuilding your pathways, we're looking to challenge the thoughts and change the behavior. Which feeds into changing the feelings, right? Yeah. And that will build a new a new neural pathway. Yeah. Some people find TBT really look, it's really challenging. Again, so yeah. if you're listening and you're like, well, I've got this 100 level task that I want to do, but breaking it down, well, that's really difficult. And again, we we incorporate when we'll go through some strategies in a moment, but we incorporate other things like how do you cope with anxiety in the moment? Yeah. Right. But sometimes people go, well, my thoughts are my thoughts. I can't change my thoughts. Yeah. Because this is scary. This is real. Like this is, and that's maybe sometimes when we start to look at acceptance and commitment therapy or act. Act is a little bit different. So we're actually not going to change your thoughts, right? And we're not going to change your experience. We're going to make space for it. Yeah. Yeah. This can sound a little bit woo-woo to people, so bear with me, right? And, again, ACT is not for everyone, yeah. right? Some people are more CBT-driven. Some people resonate more with ACT. ACT looks at can you build space for anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. What I mean by that and the best way that I can describe it is when you sit there in the moment with anxiety, can you almost this is how I picture it. It's like, again, this other creature that's sitting next to me. Yeah. It's pulled up a chair. Can I actually put my arm around it? and be like, cool, we're going to sit here.
0: Like accept that it's a part of your life.
3: We're accepting that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. We're not pushing away. We're not suppressing it. I'm not passing judgment. I'm not bad, good, in between otherwise that it's here. But it's here and I'm going to make room and I'm going to make space for it. And we yeah. can do this with a lot of different emotions, but we're focusing on on that anxiety experience. I've got someone who I'm very, very close to who experienced very, very severe panic attacks. The Years to the point of not getting out of bed. And when I said to them, Oh, I'm doing this podcast on panic attacks, like what would you say, you know, as far as the techniques that helped you? And and they saw a psychologist. But they also said, I said it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but almost welcoming the panic attack to like bring it on. Yeah. So it's over and done with. Well, it's almost like, come on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like, come at me.
0: Come bro. at me. Come <laughs> at me. And
3: not in like an aggressive way. No. Like, I'm gonna fight you, but it's just like, come on in. Yeah. If you're here, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's this full acceptance that the panic attack is going to be there and it'll be gross. And don't get me wrong, the first few times that you try this, it won't work. Yeah. Right. But over time, it's just like, yeah, come and go. And that's what this person said, almost by not fighting it and opening the front door and being like, yeah, come on in, sit on my couch, like a surrender, a surrender, hang out, you know. And just sitting with it, this full acceptance, they said it's almost like the panic attack then backs down. It lost its power. Yeah. It's just like the panic attack's like, oh, I'm not going to get anything out of Oh, Okay. And it it dissipates a lot easier. But what's happening in that moment is the person isn't getting hooked onto the the panic attack. So they're accepting that it's coming in, but it's going to sit there and then it's going to go when it wants, right? And while it sits there... I'm going to pack the dishwasher, right? I'm just getting on with my day. Yeah. And that's like ultimate level of acceptance. And and when I say sitting with it, that's what I mean. You don't have to physically sit there. Yeah. Maybe you do.
1: But it's just there. Yeah. yeah. Like this is me. This is a part of me. This is something that I'm dealing with. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. We've got to get on so with as it, So as soon as this
3: person starts to, to notice, and we all have our different signs of a panic attack, but when they were like, oh, i noticed, and I'm observing this panic attack kind of knocking on the door like it wants to happen, okay, cool. Yeah. There's no like, oh, my God, oh, I shit, I'm going to, oh, Fuck, excuse my French, but I'm going to have a panic attack. Oh, my God. Because that leads to the panic attack. Yeah.
1: Like the energy's feeding it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can do an activity to help demonstrate this. Okay. So I'm going to hand you a folder. Okay. People at home, you can think about this too. We'll give it to (laughs) but We'll do it together in a moment. Okay. Okay. So Alex, what I want you to do, so the folder is anxiety. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to do is hold it up to your face. Okay. Yep. Right over your face, close to your nose. Yeah. Okay. So you can put it back down because I'm conscious we need to speak in the microphone, (laughs) but when you've got the folder up near your nose, what can you see? Nothing. Just the folder. Just the folder. Right. So when we're talking talking about being hooked to a feeling, and this again can happen with all different emotions. In this instance, when we're hooked with anxiety or in clinical terms, what we say or ACT terms- we're fused with it, yeah. right? So we think about fused. Maybe if you're a welder, you fuse bits of metal together, yeah, right. But when we're fused, we're talking about almost like headbutting the emotional experience. I'm so fused with it; it's all I can see, yeah, right. So in this instance, when you've got the anxiety up in your front of your face, like touching your nose like a folder, right? I can't see what's going on around me. It's all consuming. I'm just kind of, I'm living in it and I'm breathing through it and it's, yeah, it's there. Okay, cool. So the next step is what if you, so if you and Tegan do a high five, put your hands together and hold that high five. And then if you put the folder in between your hands and and hold the folder there. Okay, cool. Now tell me what you can see. My hand and the folder. The hand and the folder. Yep. And what else can you see in the room? Like everything except for Tegan. Yep. Yeah. And you can see me. So we're having a conversation, right? Yeah. So in this instance, anxiety is still there. Okay. And you're putting, there's a level of energy and effort into it because you're holding it up, but we can still have a conversation. You can still go pick up your kids. You can go to work. You can do the grocery shopping. Anxiety is still there. Yeah. Okay. Next step. So keep holding it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Getting a workout. <laughs> so now Tegan's going to gently push against the folder and you're going to push back. Now tell me what it's like.
0: I don't know. Like harder?
3: Yeah. More like consuming my attention. Yeah. Wait, yeah, that's it. So you can put your folder down there. <laughs> experiment. A little activity. That's cool. Right. So what we've got in that instance is cool. So you're going about your life, right? And anxiety is there. Okay, but notice as anxiety starts to push, so Tegan's playing the role of anxiety there, you start to push back. Sure, I've given people <laughs> yeah. some anxiety in my time. That's not a character trait in, in this example, <laughs> in this activity. Right. But the anxiety is pushing on you and you're what you're doing is you're pushing back. Yeah. Right. And so again, keep in mind we're still trying to have a conversation you're thinking about picking the kids up from school you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner right again you know in your experience if you're feeling a little bit unwell yeah i've got to tend to that as well okay how long do you think for that exercise you could hold your hand up there and push like physically just now I don't know, 10 minutes. Yeah. Could you do it when you're picking your kids up? Yeah. Could you do it when you're picking your kids up and getting the groceries? Probably. Could you do it when you're feeling unwell no. and doing all those other things? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, no. So what we're seeing is, is, again, most people's reaction or response to anxiety and coping style is a fight. Yeah. I'm going to bugger this thing off. Right, I'm going to fight and fight and fight. But what this example or this activity illustrates is, is that I'm sorry, you're not gonna win. Yeah. You might, I shouldn't say that, you might, but with intense, really pervasive, consistent, all-consuming anxiety, you are going to get tired. Yeah. Because you have to run the rest of your life as well. Yeah. And you can't hold that up. So where act is coming from is, is that when we're fused with anxiety, we're pushing it. Yeah. We're suppressing it. We're avoiding it. We're not dealing with it, but it's taking up our energies and efforts. So now as we've been talking, the folder's been sitting on the table, right? Tell yep. me what you can see. Everything? Yeah, everything. So in this part of the, the activity, anxiety is still there. We haven't gotten rid of it, right? But it's down on the table. So you can look down at it. Yeah, It's there and it's present. We're not putting energies and efforts into getting rid of it. But what you've done by placing the folder down is you've diffused from the anxiety. Yeah. right. So now you can start to see and observe everything else around you. And this is this idea of act. We're creating space for, we're not getting rid of it. Yeah. Right. But we're creating space so that we can attend to the rest of our life. Yeah. Which then invertedly makes it easier to cope with the anxiety. Yeah. 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 And there's other aspects too of act, right? So taking, for example, uh, what we call valued or committed action, right? Taking committed action. So doing the things in your life that you really value is really hard to do when you've got that folder up against your face. Yeah. Putting it down not now though, we've been engaging in conversation now with that folder sitting down for close to probably five minutes. Yeah. So that this is what the idea of ACT is. Yeah. Really good explanation. Very good explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So probably one thing I would say is because people go, that's really great, Emma. But how I only know to fight. So how do I get it so that the folder is sitting down? The first thing that we want to change and try and change, and it can be a little bit tricky, is our language around it. So often people go, I'm so anxious. It's like, no, you're Ali. (laughs) <laughs> You're experiencing anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And what we want to start to do is change our language. And that might people go, what's that going to change? Just saying, that, oh, you know, I'm experiencing anxiety. <laughs> what it's doing though is it's putting you in a space of noticing and observing. Noticing and observing, and that's a real skill. If you've never done it, right, it's like – and all these things that we talk about. If you've never done a 20-kilo bicep curl before – And we'll go, hey, let's go to the gym, off you go, you're going to struggle to do it. Or you might do it with really poor form, right? The same with psychological skills. The first time you try this, it might feel really hard, really difficult. You might not get it right, that's okay. But these things take practice to build it up so it works. So by noticing and observing it, again, if we go back to this idea of panic attack, knocking at the door and you're like, hey, come on in, you're noticing, you're observing, you're not judging it. You're not like, oh, not this rat bag here again. Yeah. Oh shit, now's not the right time. I can't fight this right now because I've got a million other things to do. It's like, come on in. Yeah. Right. You're not engaging with it either. It's you're just noticing and observing. And I've spoken about this before, but it leads us to be more curious about the experience because we're not being judgmental. Yeah, I'm hopeless at this thing because this thing has come up again. This, yeah. this anxiety. So first off, you know, noticing the thought. I'm, I'm noticing the thought that when I go to the gym, people are going to stare at me. Right. So we start to get that separation from the thought. I I'm here. I'm having. I'm noticing the thought. Yeah. Right? I'm not the thought.
2: Yeah. Same with feelings.
3: I'm noticing the feeling of anxiety. I'm noticing the feeling of being sick in the stomach Yeah. or that my heart is pounding against my chest. It's noticing, it's observing. So the language starts to create this diffusion from the experience. From there, and people are probably like, again, this can sometimes get a little bit skewed, but then we go into mindfulness. Yeah. Right. Because people go, oh, you know, mindfulness, like we're going to be Buddhas sitting up with our, or monks sitting up with our legs crossed and- yeah kimming along or whatever happens. But mindfulness, again, talks about this noticing. So one way of thinking about that is if we went to sushi train, right, and we get a seat, right, and we watch the sushi train go around, okay, there'll be some things on there, some dishes that you're like, oh, that's so good, that's what I want. Yeah. There'll be some dishes that you're like, mm, you know, not for me. Not for me. It's not really my thing. And there's probably some things that you're like, absolutely not. Yeah, that is not that raw fish or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That is not my my jam. Yeah. So what happens is though is we can just notice all of those dishes going around on the train, right? And that's a little bit like our thoughts. So I think on average we have around sixty thousand thoughts a day. Yeah. Right. If we took every single thought, or we took we hooked onto, we took every single plate off the train, you'd be very full. You'd also be very exhausted, right? Yeah. And you'd spend all day doing that. What mindfulness does is, is it notices those different thoughts or those different plates going around the, the train. And then you can choose which one you want to give attention to. You want to give attention to. Yeah. Right. Or you might give attention to none of them, right? Yeah. You might just be observing kind of all day. But what we'll commonly find is that if you you know, mindfulness apps are really popular for a reason because it talks you through it. Yeah. Right. You'll probably get depending on the person you might get 30 seconds a minute into the mindfulness script and you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner yeah and the person on the script will say notice what you're thinking about right now your thoughts are probably diverted off literally me
1: but and yeah. i think people when they try and do mindfulness they'll automatically go i'm not good at it and i'm like that's yes. kind of the point that's me <laughs> yeah so the definition <laughs>
3: gonna- the definition of mindfulness is present moment non-judgmental awareness oh. so you're in the present moment so as noticing that siren right? And then I'm going to bring my attention back to the present moment, right? And I'm not going to judge myself that my thoughts went out to the siren or in this instance that my thoughts went out to the anxiety. And I'm just going to gently bring it back. And it's just continual practice, right? If you go back to this idea of being on a busy road and cars going past and our thoughts, I say to my clients, I'm like, there's probably been, I don't know, 200 cars go past or maybe a lot more yeah. in the space of the 30 minutes of our session, But not once have you got up and ran out to every single car and ran back, like (laughs) trying to get in and then come back and then go out, run out. I said, because what are you going to get done? Nothing. And that's, again, what happens with anxiety. We keep going back to it and that's our natural response because it's causing us to be alert and like hey something's going on but mindfulness then teaches us to come back to the present moment and the more that you're able to do that the bigger that mindfulness muscle gets yeah so there's heaps of apps and we can probably put them in the show notes yeah yeah there's so many apps definitely
0: do that because literally someone asked kev yesterday like in reference to
3: they listened to the episode kev did and they were like
0: What's some of the apps
3: that you would recommend yeah, to people? Yeah. And they're all really different. I would say you know, there's heaps of them. Give them all a try. Some people then find the one that they really enjoy. Yeah. Some of them will ask you to pay. That's that's your choice. But I encourage my clients. I'm like, look, there's heaps Give it there. Give a free trial. You probably get like a month's worth for free. Yeah. Um, also YouTube, mm. right? mindfulness med- meditation. Spotify now as well. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And you can find the thing that really, that really works for you. I mentioned before that, you know, being able to do something like expose yourself to the thing that, you know, relates to the anxiety is a very gradual process. There might be things in the moment that can help you to do that right? because essentially what we're doing is like, hey, we're going to throw you kind of into a bit of an anxiety state and we need, I guess, a different way of putting it. It's like I'm going to push you into the deep end of the pool, right, so you need to have your floaties on, right, so you need to have some strategies and skills in that moment. So, again, keeping those different thoughts in mind can be one, the mindfulness, so if you build a real strength with, with that, noticing the anxiety coming coming in and out, right? That was the thing I used last year at the conference. I think I had to speak at around 2 p.m. I was watching other speakers from 9 a.m. And I noticed my anxiety gradually build as the day went on. And so throughout that, I was just like, oh, look, here comes that anxiety again. Cool. Yeah. and then what is this person talking about? Come back to the present moment. And I didn't judge myself. I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, mean, you presented before. Like, this will be fine. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. It was like, here, anxiety is here. It's telling me this is important. Cool. How do Right." So that's the practice in that moment. But breathing is really important. It can be a little bit Captain Obvious. People feel it is because it's like, thank you for telling me to breathe. Like, but for something that we do every day, a lot of us don't do it very well. Yeah, right. Because it's again, it's just this automatic thing. But if we think about that, one of the most common experiences with anxiety from a physical perspective is that increase in heart rate and there's shallow breathing can lead to hyperventilation. Yeah. So what we want to try and do is we want to try and change that because if we can change that physical response, our brain goes, oh maybe this isn't anxiety. Maybe it's gonna be okay. And it starts to naturally calm. So often we would tell people, you know, calm breathing and just, you know, breathe in, breathe out. That's great, right? But probably the next sort of step to that is starting to make the breath out the longer part because that's the part that taps into that, the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So keep in mind with anxiety, the sympathetic nervous system has kicked off. What we want to try and do is we want to try and activate the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the nervous system that has to do with like relaxing and digesting and chilling out. So when we breathe out slightly longer, then our breath in, that's the part that taps into that parasympathetic nervous system. Sometimes counting can help. So sometimes I'll have a client and again, it depends on your lung capacity, but it's like, okay, if we breathe in slowly for four, we hold it for two, count of two, and then you breathe out for six. Yeah, And you can find, it doesn't need to be those numbers, Yeah, but you can find your own starting point and just make that one at the end, the breath out slightly longer. Yeah. With practice, you'll probably find that you can increase those numbers.
0: Do you know what is like so interesting and so relates like at the moment? So, you know, I've been swimming like Mm. in training for the triathlon and it's something I've been doing so much. And now that I've gotten back into like my rhythm and stuff, I've like really nailed my breathing and obviously you're breathing in and then like breathe out for four underneath you with that quick breath in. Now when I'm going to sleep and I can't get to sleep, I've been breathing like I'm in the pool Mm -hmm. and I fall asleep so quickly.
1: Yep. It's wild. Is is it square breathing or circle breathing Mm -hmm. where you do four, 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 four? Box breathing. Box yeah, breathing. Yeah. I knew it was
3: something square. Yeah. I do so, that when I can't sleep. Yeah. yeah. So box breathing also works. So while it doesn't have the longer breath out, that can work really well for some people because it gives, gives them that rhythm of breathing, right? Yeah. Because, again, when you're when you're breathing in a shallow state, it tends to be very erratic. Yeah. It's not consistent. You're taking a sharp breath in. Keep in mind that's part of a fear response when we gasp when we go, <gasps> the reason that happens is because your body's like, I need oxygen in. Because I'm going to have to do something. That's why we gasp. But that's why we tend to find when we experience anxiety, it's like I'm gasping and then I'm like trying to slowly breathe out and then it's like a shallow breath and then it's like panting and it's it's all over the place. What box breathing does is it puts you in like this rhythmic state and it also gives you something visually. To link it to. And that's why when in Kev's episode, he was talking about the the diagrams that kind of you breathe with it. So it expands out. Yeah. And then it goes back in. Because it also gives you, again, when we're learning these skills, it gives you something to reference off. Yeah. Right. There's some people out there very skilled. They'll just do mindfulness meditation themselves. Yeah. But listening to someone else talk you through it is what typically happens at the start until you become well-skilled. The same as breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why those those things work. Yeah. Sometimes it's called diaphragmatic breathing, right? Yeah. So at the base of our sort of abdomen, our lungs, our rib cage, we have the diaphragm muscle. Now again, this is really where we if we're if we only engage in shallow breathing, we haven't worked that muscle. If you engage in box breathing or that like four, two, six breathing, it'll feel hard to start off with because it's physically hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've never had to, or you've never really consciously thought about expanding the diaphragm out so physically that's just not there yet and then so that's one way that you can think about like you know reps and sets it's like cool i'm going to do this until it starts to feel easy yeah another way to think about it and again because different cues work for different people is having a buddha belly so you see those statues of buddhas with their legs crossed and they've got these big like you know lovely like big round bellies yeah so, one way of thinking of that is when we engage in this diaphragmatic breathing or deep breathing, that's what we actually want to envisage that our belly is coming out. Yeah. Because we're getting the air down into the diaphragm and expands out. So, one way that you can do that is if you put your tips of your fingers together very, very lightly and you put that at the base of like your rib cage, the top of your tummy. Okay. So, when you breathe in, right, we should get to a point where the air is going down that your fingers will lightly separate. Then, when you breathe back in, they'll come back together. So that can be an, another nice visual cue for some people to physically feel that, oh, yes, I'm getting the air down into my diaphragm and not into my chest or not just into my chest. Also, too, with you know, speaking about swimming and, and creating that breathing pattern, exercise is really great for anxiety.
2: Yeah,
3: It's a little bit tricky, though. So if we look into some of like our highest level evidence and research, high intensity interval training, great for anxiety. But it's kind of uh, a double-edged sword because it's probably not the thing that if you're experiencing anxiety that you feel like doing. Yeah. Because it mimics an anxiety response. So if you're experiencing anxiety or panic attack, right, from a physical perspective, you feel hot and sweaty, your heart rate. Again, as we've spoken before, sometimes we exercise so much, we can hear our heart rate in our ears, right? So our heart is pounding out of our chest. We might feel a little bit uneasy. Sometimes when we exercise, we feel a bit bit queasy right? We feel our lunch, like, so (laughs) what happens is then when, if someone's experience has experienced anxiety, they might not be, you know, having a panic attack or being anxious in the moment of exercising, but when they start to, and, and these physiological, these normal physiological responses to exercise or high intensity training start to happen, they're like, oh, shit, my heart's pounding. I might be getting anxious. I might be having a panic attack. Yeah. Because our brain has that association, right?
1: I heard someone talking about it recently on a podcast and it was someone who had PTSD yeah. and anxiety and mm. she was saying like she's actually really into hit training now because her body has come to like crave that feeling but she's mm. in control of it. Correct. So it's mm. like almost like an outlet.
3: Yes. So this is why hit is so good for anxiety because it it teaches you from a physical perspective not to be in fear Fearful. of those physical symptoms. Yeah. It rewires to go, actually, no, this is my body pumping oxygenated blood around and the heart pumping oxygenated blood around the body. Yeah. So I can do these burpees, right? I'm not anxious. right? So it starts, and it starts to build this idea then that if I can do that when I'm doing burpees, when I'm noticing the feeling of anxiety and my heart rate's peaking. Yeah. yeah, I've got that strength there too to be able to, to cope with that. And, again, it then lessens the whole experience. It's not as intense. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, though, is if, again, you're listening to this and you're like, well, that's all well and good, Emma. That sounds really, really bloody hard, mm. okay? It is, again, a gradual process. Yeah. Right? And sometimes this is where things like yoga, Tai Chi, Pilates, while they're not high intensity, they teach you to breathe. Yeah. These sort of what we sometimes term like in – Research they call them like mind body exercises. Yeah. So it can more be the teaching of the breathing that then can help with the anxiety. Of course, to any sort of exercise, walking for example, running, whatever it may be, whatever you enjoy is going to then have these other physiological responses like endorphins yeah. and you know you know fantastic hormones and all those sorts of things that will then also help with anxiety. So what I would say is if you're going well, hit sounds wonderful, but it's too much at the moment. You build yourself up. If you're at a point though where you're like, okay, I'm experiencing anxiety, but it interests me. That's something that you could look at as like Mm. a supplementary thing. Yeah, cool. So another thing that we can look at is opposites. So this starts to tap into a little bit of a different therapeutic approach, but I feel still think it has a bit of merit because again, when we're in the moment of experiencing anxiety, we need to try and show our body a different response just kind of go, it's Okay. So if you, again, if you think about those physiological responses, we want to try and think about the opposite. So I've had clients before where I'm like, okay, you're at home, you're experiencing a panic attack. Tell me what it's like. They're like, I get so hot and clammy and sweaty and it's just, it's full on. Yeah. I'm like, cool. So what we're going, you know, what we can work on is jumping in the shower with your clothes on and blast the cold water. Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, show your body in that state because you're starting to become distressed. Yeah. Okay. So we've, again, as I said before, stress, anxiety. Yeah. We cope with it. We manage it. We kind of we can work with it. If you're at a point of distress where you're so just like this is so full on, you you can't often reason yourself out of it. Yeah. Right. So again, that's where the captain obvious things come in, and you're like, thanks for telling me just to calm down. Doesn't work. It makes you probably feel worse. Yeah. If you can show your body a different response that can cause that distress to come down. Yeah. So I say to clients, I'm like, don't bother taking your clothes off. Get in there. <laughs> Blast mm-hmm. the cold water.
0: Is that like showing your body you're in control?
3: Yes. Yeah. And I think it taps into that as well because it calms it calms it down. Yeah. Sometimes I have clients, like, I'm just really anxious. I'm just like fidgety and irritated. Like I'm just, you know, can't sit still. I'm like, cool. In your house or your backyard, wherever, I'm like, I want you to run up and down on the spot as vigorously and as hard as you can for 30 seconds until you can't keep going. Yep. And they're like, why? I'm like, because your body's agitated. Yeah. Cool, let's go then, right? Because you might not be in a state. Like zoomies. Yeah, yeah, yeah get yeah. zoomies, right? Because you might not be in a state like I'm really agitated. After a while, the mindfulness and the breathing and whatnot, that will work, don't get me wrong. But if you're in the early stages and, and again, you're in, you've are in, you reached the peak of distress, Yeah, you've got to burn that, right? Yes. So running up and down vigorously on the spot, right? Yeah i've had clients too where it's like oh they just feel and that probably taps into a little bit of that depersonalization like not really feeling in the moment and maybe we're starting to talk about a little bit of a dissociation like and they kind of don't really feel that they're there right and this is when we start to talk about like i don't really have the evidence on it but like weight and blankets and those sorts of things i'm like cool lay on your bed and roll yourself up tightly in your doona right yeah like a burrito and just stay there and breathe <laughs> yeah. because you've got that security. Yeah. Now, again, these are things too. We don't want to rely on that because, again, you can't roll yourself up in a duna blanket at work. Yeah. Maybe you can. I don't know. <laughs> so, But it's distress. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about here is showing the body the opposite, right? Yeah. It's a little bit like sometimes in some settings when people feel, again, feel scared or that you're, um, you're a little bit worried. Like, cool, act confident.
2: Yeah. Mm.
3: Right, so we're sort of trying to tell and show our body a different way. This can also link into what we call progressive muscle relaxation, and this is a really popular thing that we use with athletes yep. before competitions and whatnot, but we can also use it in very segmented ways as well. So if you YouTube progressive muscle relaxation script, it'll come up with one that across your whole, for your whole body. Yeah. And basically what it will do, like you'll lay down and it will ask you to do a body scan. So from the top of your head all the way down, where do you feel tension? Yeah. right? Provide that tension is something that you experience when you're experiencing anxiety.
2: Yeah.
3: And you do that body scan, right? And then what we do, so again, when people go, we well, just relax and you're like, yeah. fuck, yeah, excuse me, but F off. Yeah. Right? You're allowed to swear on the body. Fuck <laughs> off. Like, I would relax. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Sometimes what we actually need to do is to show our body what relaxed is. Okay. So for me, my traps, Right, I don't know if it's genetics because I was looking at Christmas yeah. at my mom and my grandma. I was like, "That's where I get that from." Yeah. But my traps are very dominant, right? And when I get stressed, so this week I distinctly remember on Tuesday making a very big life decision, and within a couple of hours, my right trap it was on fire. Yeah. Right. So there's there's some link there. So if you think about that, if that's where you hold your tension, right, and we can do it now if you're listening at home, actually
0: right now, like, <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> What you can do is bring your shoulders and your traps up towards your ears and squeeze. Now, don't do it so you hurt yourself, right, no injuries, and you hold it there and you might hold it there for a little bit and then as you let go, you breathe out. That's relaxed. Yeah, so you've just purposefully tensed a muscle or muscle group, right, so that's stress, tension, and then you let it go or you relax. That's relaxed. And your brain's like, oh, when they say just relax, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. So you can do a whole script of this where, you know, we've done it, I've done it before with clients and in group therapy before where everyone's just laying on the ground, right, and it's like, cool, tense your traps or your shoulders, yeah. right, right, squeeze your arms together into your body and let go, yeah. squeeze your fists, and you go through the whole body. But you can also do this in very segmented ways. So, again, if you know, like me, that stress, anxiety up in my traps, I can just do that, mm, right? Yeah. Straight to the point. Straight to the point, right, yeah. So you can think about doing something like that as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that.
3: So you've definitely given me a lot to
1: think about and like to understand some of my friends that do have anxiety and I just think when we're going places and and people will say to me like, but what's the parking situation like? And I think... Who fucking cares? Like we have to park everywhere we go. But now Mm. I'm understanding like people that are anxious, there's layers on layers and all of these Mm. situations that could compound the anxiety. So now Mm. I can be a little bit more accepting that that's a really stressful thing for them. And that's adding to anxiety that they might already have about the event that we're going to. So what else can I do? Like what else can other people do that don't have anxiety to support people that do?
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's a range of things. I think the first one is listening, right? And i Perhaps think that everyone thinks they're a good listener, <laughs> but true listening is sitting with that person and if they need to talk it out or they need to rattle things off or whatnot, and it's it's listening. So and what we mean by that is if I think about it more in like a, you know, a health professional aspect, we're talking about active listening. Yeah. Okay. So active listening is someone is talking and as they're talking, you're nodding your head, right? And you don't need to be like one of those those Hawaiian dolls that sit in the back of the cards and they nod their heads. Nodding dogs. Yeah. Don't be a nodding dog (laughs) or a nodding Hawaiian dancer, right? But it's just gently nodding because you're showing that person that you're following. Mm. Those minimal encourages, mm, Mm
1: mm-hmm,
3: yeah. Yeah, right? So we're just – we're following along as this person uh, is talking. And then that active listening, so that's that component where we often reflect back to the person what we're hearing. Yeah. Okay, so your friend might be saying – I'm really excited to go to this event, and but I'm, you know, I know I really appreciate that you're driving us, so but I'm just really worried about where we're going to park. Where we're going to park? Like when we, like, we get there? And this thing happens, and, da-da-da-da-da, and then we run late to the event. Okay, and it could be like okay, like you know, you're concerned because and you're worried that we're going to run late for the event. So you're not parroting back what the person has said. So parroting back is saying the exact same words as what they just said.
2: Yeah.
0: Because
3: they'll be like, yeah, aren't you listening? Yeah, that's what I just said. Yeah. But when we actively listen, what we start to do is we start to tap into the emotional component, right, and we kind of go, and it can just be like, oh, I can see that you're worried about the parking situation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't
3: need to be long right? So yeah. again, when we're active listening, what we say back tends to be quite short. Yeah. yeah. I can, I can see that you're really worried about where we're going to park. Yeah. What that does is it encourages the person to keep telling what's happening for them. When I'm sitting with a client and I can see that they're talking something. Through, and you can tell when someone is consumed by something and they're talking about it. And they have got more to say, the cogs are turning. Yeah. Right. And if, someone, if your friends experience anxiety or a partner or whatnot, you can see that happening. Yeah. Right? If you're really tuned into and, and sort of watching and observing them. So quite often someone will say, that, oh, I'm really worried about the parking. If we get there late and we spend all this money, it's just, oh, I just don't know what we're going to do. Now, most of the time you're chiming in with something, but I would recommend, and this can be a practice and you won't always get it right, is to take a breath before you say something. Yeah. See if the person is going to continue what they're talking about, right? Because what they're starting to do is as they're sort of talking this situation out in that anxious kind of mind, they're trying to start to put it all together. Yeah. And sometimes, too, I don't know if you had this experience where you've been talking about something, and then you wanted to say something else, but then someone else kind of butted in, and you're like, "Oh, okay, yeah." Like, yeah. And it kind of the moment has passed. So sometimes a little bit of silence can be quite useful if yeah. you notice that this person is like, "Okay, they're working it out." That they want to voice this. Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm just going to sit here and hold that space for them to talk it to talk it through. Now, don't be fooled. Sometimes you can get it wrong. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I get it wrong with clients, and they kind of sit in there and I think, oh, I think, great, they're thinking about this a little bit more. And then they kind of look up at me and they're like, oh, uh, did you want me to say something more? Yeah, yeah I'm like, yeah. oh, no, mate. I'm just <laughs> giving you a little bit of time. Like, <laughs> there's no rush here. We've got 50 minutes. Yeah. Right, so if you get it wrong, just say that to someone. Like, oh, I just want to give you a bit of space. Yeah, 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 Yeah. that's it, actually. But know. I think if you're matching the person with minimal encourages and nodding, yeah. that shows that you're listening. So that can be one thing. And maybe, too, like if we're thinking about a dynamic, like a really good friend or a partner, right? And normally you would just chime in, right? Yeah. Maybe preface to them when they're not anxious and go, "Hey, I was listening to this really great podcast, <laughs> and one of those suggestions was to use a little bit more silence, so that when you're in those, when you're anxious or experiencing anxiety, it gives you a little bit more time, right? So I just wanted to let you know that, right? Because so I'm gonna start, know. I'm gonna start practicing that because I want to really understand what it's like for you. So yeah. you can, you can preface that. Often we don't talk about how we should communicate or how we're going to c- communicate. But we can do that. Yeah. So say, for example, you're using this active listening, like, oh, I, I've noticed that you yeah, you're really worried about the parking, right? We can ask open-ended questions. Tell me more about it. What's it like for you right now? Okay. So it's it's not just like, well, don't you want to go? Yeah. We're not going to ask closed-ended questions. We want to keep the conversation going. Tell me what it's like. We might use a little bit of silence. Encourage and affirm them. So affirmations is a real psychology city term, but affirm the person in your life that experiences anxiety and or panic attacks affirm it and encourage them on every occasion yeah yeah because sometimes i think we don't think to do that right i noticed that was really hard for you to go to that event i'm so proud of you that you went yeah you did so well yeah any and any even if it's just like this little glimmer of something that they did they went to colds by themselves and you think oh well by yourself like righto that could be huge you, that mm. was so fantastic so affirmations all of the time yeah i would also say to asking permission before you share now what i mean by this is sometimes we can watch a dynamic where we're trying to support someone and we we want to chime and go oh when, when i feel like that yeah, yeah oh, i had this time when i did this i had this time when i felt like that now i appreciate the efforts there what we're trying to do is we're trying to relate yeah, yeah we're trying to give this person a hand be like i've been there too yeah for some people though, in that moment, they might not want to hear. Like, oh, you felt like this too. And it's like, and? Great. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm currently in it. And I feel like shit. So like, <laughs> help me. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes what it can what it can be is, is that you're actively listening, you're reflecting back, giving them time, a little bit of silence and whatnot. And then it can be something along the lines of You know, once before I went to this conference and I had to present, I felt really anxious, but I felt like I kind of made it through quite well. Would it be okay if I share with you some of the things that helped me? Yeah. Now, most of the time that person will say yes, but what you're doing, and when I use that with clients, right, as health professions, we always try to disclose very appropriately. They'll say yes, but what you're also doing is you're giving that person control and power to say Actually, not. I don't think hearing the strategy right now is going to help. Yeah. Right. And it's taps into a little bit about when you spoke with Kev about do you want a solution or do you want empathy or do you want sympathy? Yeah. Yep. Do you want me to problem solve this for you or do you want me to give you a hug and go, it's going to be okay? Yeah. I don't know how we're going to get through it, but it's going to be okay. Yeah. And console. And so that gives that person that control and that autonomy to go, no, I don't know about right now. Yeah, I just really need a hug. Yeah. Yep. Rather than chiming in and being like, oh, well, I did this yeah. and they're like, well, thanks. Yeah. I don't think that's how it's going to help right now. And that leads into my next point about being the voice of reason in the moment yeah. with like implementing a strategy uh, or being the voice of reason out of the moment, yeah. okay, even if you know it in the moment. So let me explain that because that was a mouthful. So – I really love it as a psychologist when I say to my clients, who, who do you live with? Who's helping you with this experience? What's going on? They're like, my partner, my best friend, my housemate, my sister, whoever it may be. I'm like, cool. I'm like, how invested are they in this process? Would you like them to be a part of this process? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we mentioned before, quite often when we experience anxiety or a panic attack, those strategies, you know, what strategies? Yeah. I don't remember any strategies that I learned with my psychologist or I listened to this podcast and they talk, spoke about box breathing. <laughs> I don't remember that. So in the moment, you could be that voice of reason and be like, hey, maybe this is one of these, this is the time that the psychologist was talking about. Yeah. Hey, hey, you came home and you told me about using that that progressive muscle relaxation or PMR or that diaphragmatic breathing in the moment. Should we practice it now together? Yeah. So you're in the moment just kind of cueing them to be like, oh, remember that thing. Okay. So voice of reason in the moment, voice of reason out of the moment, even when you're in the moment watching it going... Now would be a really great time for my partner to be thought restructuring this. Now would be a really good time for my partner to go to Coles while they're experiencing some of this anxiety. Yeah. yeah. But I can see that they don't want to do it. So I'm going to console them in that moment or, or give them that empathy or that support how they choose. Then out of it, I'm going to approach them about it. Yeah. So this is when we can go to our partner or our friend or our sibling and go, hey, you know, a couple of days ago when you were having that that panic attack? And I could see that it was really, really hard for you. And you did so well to get through that. I was wondering if is that one of those moments then when we should look at doing the box breathing? Mm. Oh, yeah, that would have been actually like, yeah, that would be good. Cool. And then you can put a plan in place to do that next time. Yeah. Because again, remember in that moment we're meeting someone who is perhaps not fully in that logical reasoning mindset. Yeah. They're all consumed by the anxiety. So you just chiming in and you can ask, Hey, is this a time we want to use one of those strategies, but sometimes reserving what you want to say for when that person is not anxious and they can hear it and they can hear it and they yeah. can go and they can. Now, as a person who is not experiencing anxiety, that asks a lot of you essentially to hold that, that space. Yeah. To hold that space for that person with the experience of anxiety. Yeah. So this is when we often talk about, you know, caring for the carer. It's really important that if you're helping someone through this. Yeah. Right, that you're taking time for self and balancing that. Because yeah. you're then holding that emotional space. Yeah. For them. Those are such good strategies. Other ones, I think, you know, links to care, like being informed. Yeah. You know, so if, you know, Dr. Google can be good. There's two sides there, but you know, understanding what is anxiety. Like I said before that living with it book is great because it starts to describe anxiety and where it comes from and how how it can happen and doing a bit of research. I would also say too, that if your person who's experienced anxiety is seeing a psychologist, they may have been given resources, but I would also say too, to be respectful of that space. Right. So saying things like, Hey, like you know, you can tell me anything you want about your psych appointment or you can tell me nothing, but if there are any resources that they passed on, I'd really love to see it. Like, so again, just giving them that their private space, but you're on the side there as well. And my last one would be planting, planting seeds. So what I mean by that is if you're noticing that there's someone in your life experiencing anxiety and they're really resistant to the idea of getting support and help for it, come from a place of care and plant that seed. Yeah. Yeah. You know you know, I was listening to this podcast the other day and they were talking about anxiety and, and it kind of matched with some of the things that you've been talking about. You know, I can give you the podcast if you like, and they, but they spoke about going to see someone and I'm, I'm really concerned for you. Like, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. No way. I'm not seeing anyone. I'm not crazy. Blah, blah, blah. This is what we commonly hear when people are resistant yeah. and that's totally okay. But yep. Yeah no worries what you've done is you've planted that seed of going and seeking support or listening to a podcast or reading a book or whatnot and that's okay right we don't have to sometimes when we're naturally solution focused problem solvers if we don't get the outcome of like oh shit that didn't work yeah but often in psychology we come from a place of like let's plant this idea and let the person think about it yeah and let them come to that on their own yeah yeah people have done that to me before (laughs) yeah have you heard this
0: podcast you should listen to it Just quickly, before we wrap this up, Em's gonna put a bunch of the resources together for us places that you can contact if you feel like you have any of these things popping up for you. So we will put them in the show notes and on our Instagram. And can you just remind everyone where they can find you? Yes,
3: absolutely. I'm at Emotion Psychology on Instagram and emotionpsychology.com is my website. And yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: I just want to say thank you. This has been the most valuable two hours I've ever sat through so (laughs) I can't wait for so many people in my life to hear this I feel like there's just so many things that you can action in there so thank you once again for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us we really 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 appreciate it and like Tegan said like your episodes so far have been our most popular so people really get a lot out of it so thank you for your time
3: no worries thanks for having me as
1: always thank you for tuning into the episode we want to thank all of our loyal listeners and those that take the time to share the pod on instagram or send it to someone that they think will enjoy it too this really helps us grow the podcast and we are really grateful if you have a spare second we would love you to leave us a comment or a review on the platform that you listen on and also be sure to check out
0: hey our production's newest podcast the periodical pod which we just launched at the periodical pod on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you again next week. <laughs> Bye.